1: Hello, I'm JT Crowley, and today I'm pleased to welcome another fascinating author onto the show. I'm joined today by Paul W. Narragon from Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States, with his book "Gibberish's Rhymes to Contemplate, subtitle Poetic Verse Moving You Into a New Life. However, this isn't the only book Paul has written. In fact, He has two more books that carry gibberishy rhymes in their title, and they are Gibberishy Rhymes, Profound Rhymes, sorry, which carries the subtitle, How to Be the Change You Expect to See in the World, and the other book, While the Gibberishy Rhymes, His Bed Burns, subtitle, Changing Perspectives for Changing Times. In addition to the gibberishy rhyme books, Paul has written another book, Boy without a father. Subtitle, how extraterrestrials influence us, contact and reincarnation in a remote Andean village. Paul has taken the opportunity in his life to understand and appreciate human diversity. He studied anthropology at the University of Wisconsin. He was awarded a national defense foreign language fellowship to study Tibetan. He's also studied Korean at the Defence Language Institute in Monterey and Russian in college. Paul has been very fortunate to have been given the opportunity to extensively travel the world, in particular Central and South America, where he's been to Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Guatemala and Mexico. No matter where he has been in the world, the cultures and the practices of the people who live in those places has fascinated him. And some of that fascination, everybody has rubbed off, overspilled into his books. When he was a child, Paul lived on a farm until high school age. At 30, he joined the US Army, serving in Germany, and the Sinai Desert in Egypt as part of a multinational peacekeeping force. He received two Army Achievement Medals and two Army Commendation Medals. I think it would be fair enough to say, everybody, that Paul W. Narragon has led a varied and fulfilling life to date. So let's invite this youthful person of 73 onto the show to discover more about him and his books. But for the purpose of this podcast interview, we're going to concentrate on the second book in the gibberish rhyme books, gibberish rhymes to contemplate. Paul Narragan, come and join me.
0: John Crawley, nice to see you.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. To uh, it's been a fascinating insight to your life and to the books that you've written. Um, so we're going to, you know, get to the nub of what you write about straight away so that the listeners can get a feel for what you and your writings are all about. Paul, before we open this ingenious creative book of yours, which is the second book of the Gibberish Rhymes books, I want to clarify a couple of things. You say that the words in this book answer the questions, who creates a new you? You go on to say, to see life in you ignites an explosion in you. And when your view of everything changes, everything changes for you. So my question is, do you fundamentally believe that the underlying messages in this book of rhyming couplets achieve all this? And how do you substantiate that?
0: Uh, yes, John, I do believe that uh, the poems do. And really the way that they do it is simply when you have an underlying realization that thoughts create reality. And so when you start thinking different thoughts, you are creating a different reality. So what I've tried to do in, in the poems that I've written is to take certain realizations and show people that it is the way they think that is creating the way their life is, and that when they can see that differently, they're creating not only a different them, they're creating a different life for themselves. So the poems are trying to look at different aspects of life and to see how that interplays.
1: You know, when I look at the book, um, there's an awful lot going on in this book, everybody. There's a lot of poems, you know, the rhyming couplets. Um and it, it's for me, the these poems, these rhyming couplets, these messages, these sayings really do come from what Paul has seen, experienced in his life, um across all the jobs that he's done. And I find them fascinating. Now we are going to read some of them, everybody, but we're only going to read eight. And if you want to know what the, all the others are about, got a good idea for you. Buy the book. <laughs> I can't be fairer than that, everybody. But I want to ask I want to ask Paul before we get into reading some of the stories for you, uh, the rhymes. Uh Paul, for me, when I look at the basics of writing, you know, poems, rhythmic messages. Um I understand that there are formulas that have been set aside. You know, you've got poems who are structured around haku, sinquen, quatrain, and sonnet. And I also know that each of these poetic forms have specific numbers of lines and syllables. When I look at the types of poems that you write, you know, your rhythmic messengers, I see a lot um, of things, you know, similar. And I perhaps would probably say, yes, they are rhyming couplets, but they're probably free verse as well. And when I look at the, the characteristics, you know, within the structures of poetry, you've got odes, you've got elegies, you've got um a villanelle, you've got sonnets, acrostic, you've got ballads, limericks, and numerous other classifications. Again, I see free verse here, coupled with um, you know, the rhymic, rhyming, you know, couplets as more lyric poetry to me. So my question to you is, why did you set up your, your writings, your sayings, your poetry in the fashion that you have done these rhyming couplets?
0: I would say that the uh, the simplest explanation uh that I've come up with for myself to understand what even what I do is the fact that rhyming has been something that has been used in oral literature for a very long time and actually in in the oral tradition uh when one one generation wants to pass on knowledge to another it uses the oral tradition to do so it has it has done in primitive cultures and in uh, cultures for a very long time. But part of that has been we, even as kids, remember most of the rhymes that we heard as kids. And so rhyming has been a way in which we retain thoughts much easier than just this straight verse. So what I did is I I thought, well, I always thought the idea of parsimony was, was, was a practical thing. And that is the simplest words explaining what you want someone to understand. So that coupled with rhyme seemed to me to be just kind of an eloquent way to enjoy a new idea and remember it.
1: Okay. Paul, well, let's give um, the listeners and viewers a sample of the poems, uh, rhythmic messages in your book so that they can formulate their own opinions as to whether they see them as free verse, standard verse or whatever, and what categories they want to put them into. Now, everybody, Paul has chosen eight readings to highlight his work. Paul will read four of them, and I'll read the other four. And at the end of each reading, Paul will explain what he's trying to say here, what this message is, what this poem, what this rhythmic couple, this message, this saying is all about. So, Paul, would you like to start us off with... Um, Reading is Responsibility on page one. And read that to us and then tell us what is the concept behind this?
0: Sure, most happy to do that. Freedom is Responsibility, the title. Responsibility, the ability to respond, is the natural authority and power for a creature to grow on For any creature not acting on his own behalf is most absurd, producing an uproarious laugh. Living natural and free is accepting full responsibility. Responsibility is the first and foremost itself rule. By extension, it's the golden rule. To abdicate your responsibility is to be a fool a false notion that gives another the control tool. For another cannot take responsibility for you without taking your power and authority to exercise it. No longer responsible for yourself means no longer sovereign. You are a property of someone else. Your life becomes dictated to you and one who dictates by whatever name is a dictator. No one can be more responsible than continuing to self-create. No one can be more re- irresponsible than surrendering to another's dictates. Authority and power cannot be separated from responsibility. To give up responsibility is to hand over all three. Now, it seems to me the way I worded it, it's... It should be self-evident what it's saying here. But to, to explain it in simple terms is also to say that we, as individuals, are responsible for our lives. If we don't take responsibility, then there it comes into this thing that we call blame. That is to say, when we're not responsible for whatever it is that we do, we like to place that responsibility on someone else. Well, as soon as we place the responsibility for what has happened on someone else. We have abdicated our responsibility, we've abdicated our authority, we've abdicated our own power. And people wonder why they feel disempowered. Well, when they say that someone else has the power to make decisions for them, that's exactly using their own power against themselves. So it's important to understand that responsibility does reflect one's power and one's authority. And there is no one who can explain more clearly who one is than oneself. And everyone has a genuine nature. And for one to use and appreciate that genuine nature, one must be responsible for their life. And then that means one must be responsible, taking the authority and having the power to live as they wish.
1: That's a powerful statement. Let's go to um, detecting what you're projecting. So this uh, poem, this uh, Rami couplet um, story, everybody, is on page 11 of the book. I'm going to read it now. I say or do things for reasons you don't see. What you think are your interpretations put on me. A worked up conclusion is blindness to what you are doing and the result of total misunderstanding, or the judgment you're pursuing. When you're thinking about what's going on, you fail to see that it's your thought you. Think, not something beyond. What you think of me is not me, but you. Do you realize what your thoughts can do? You are projecting. Your thoughts are your dots, you are connecting. The nature of how impressions are created is where you're caught, no matter who or what is thought. When I look at you, I see through me. When you look at me, you see through you. Let's not confuse the two. I see my thoughts, you see yours. That's why our lives are different scores. The most important thing not to do is separate one into two. I see through me. You see through you. Projecting your thoughts, saying it's another, makes the obvious illusion appear true. Wow. Why that one?
0: Well, I was really touched uh, from child from childhood by people who would say. They would claim I was this or that. And when I sat with those ideas that people had of me, it became very clear to me that these were thoughts that they have of me, which means their thoughts are being projected onto me. So it should be clear when people read this that there is something here that's very profound. And that is to say that that is the way people live their life. When they look at someone else, they're always looking through their own thoughts because thoughts create, as I have said earlier, thoughts create. And so what a person thinks of another person is they're creating their impression of that person, which whether or not it is that person is always open to question. But we must realize our world is the way we think it is. That's why people have different experiences Of the same situation if there's a car crash you ask several observers and those observers will all have a different variation of the accident and it's because everybody projects what they think they see so it's very obvious people are projecting
1: um let's go to uh for you to read this time the erroneous claim and that is on page 19, everybody.
0: The title, The Erroneous Claim. All misery and suffering are due to a false of belief. Unreleased, there is no relief. You're the body, is the erroneous claim, supported by breathing, eating, walking, and acting the refrain. You're an eternal spirit that cannot be killed. Saying you're the body... Is how compliance is instilled. Suffering is confinement to this belief and prearranged thought, a fairy tale taught, but in believing it, more like a spider's web caught. To be told and retold does not make words come true, it's only make believe, it's only a make believe view. On that basis, you tell yourself and others. What you what to you is true, confining you and those you influence in what to do, as with any drama, what's believed and projected is the trauma to tell the masses the same structure is to create social form, the intention to make everyone conform to establish conformity is a transform is to transform. A group functional when the majority is duped. I believe you're the body, is a prescription for pain. A placebo for the truth, driving people insane, acting out of character, and acting out a character is is pathological. Yet wanting the fame of a movie star seems logical. An out-of-body experience is enough to tell you, the body, you are not. Evidence that will end such a dysfunctional perspective on the spot.
1: This is um, an interesting little story. Yes, it is. Uh,
0: And this is also one of the things that, uh, again, through my own experience, one can appreciate this, is that, There's so much uh, that we seem to convey that reflects that we're the body, which we're not. It's what's visible to us. We are the power that animates this, this entity. And so when people realize the difference, they're starting to see a very clear freedom that they don't have otherwise when they're stuck in a confinement of the body. The body dies, yes. But we drop that body. We don't. We're not. We're not. We don't disintegrate with it. We are an eternal being that continues to exist. And so you can see that if you if this erroneous belief continues, people live throughout their whole life with a fear that their life comes to an end, when it never ends for the spirit. The spirit just has this wonderful opportunity to experience another life in another body. Mm-hmm. So this is really the key to, I feel, understanding a lot of what goes on in life, is, is to recognize that this belief that you are the body is erroneous.
1: Interesting viewpoints. Now, I like this one I'm going to read. I think this is my favorite out of all the stories in your uh, book here. The United State of Creation. The forefathers of the United States of America carried an extraordinary spiritual awareness into this material domain of the people, by the people, for the people. It's deeper meaning profound and right here to be found. You, a spirit in a body, are a creator, easy enough to discern. Any creation is the creator's only concern. Of the creator, by the creator, and for the creator. Whilst these few words tell a huge score, they allude to so much more. Of the creator, indeed, of awareness. By the creator, indeed, by intention or the creator, indeed, for its benefit. The panorama of your life is your awareness shared. It shows who you consider yourself and who your life to be about. Your awareness expressed through actions leaves no doubt. Awareness is inseparable from intention. Only a couple exams need mention share and care of use and abuse you in the present moment are far more than the idea that you choose you are awareness and intention which reflect the nature of the benefits are the benefits material that come directly to you or is everything a stage of awareness you are currently going through there's no right or wrong you think and have to listen to your own song. Do others ignore it or want to join in and sing along? Of awareness by intention for benefit, for each it's transparent and what's clear is it all fits. The reflection of matters becomes transparent before the spiritual eye. Where before you were in materials disguise, Lay this template of any aspect of creation. You'll begin to see every profound indication. I like that one.
0: I agree. Uh, You know, this to me was one of the uh, more profound things that I realized is that when I first read uh, the constitution and looked at the basis for the development of an ideal country, it also reflected to me, wow, this is this is incredible because this also reflects what can be the basis or the template for an incredible individual life. And so I guess what I was trying to point out in here that really was the most profound thing to me, John, was that if you look at and see of the people, by the people and for the people, and then you think about your life of me, by me, and for me. If if my life is for me, it should be very obvious that what has happened is for me. But if you're suffering, is this template reflect what really is for you? So what I was able to see is that this really shows that we are really not living our life as we could live it. Is that are we creating this life or is someone else creating it for us? Is it of our wishes or is it the wishes of others? And is it for our benefit or is it primarily for the benefit of others? So I thought it became a very profound way of looking at life.
1: I liked the bit, you know, where it's you know, of the people, for the people. And that, you know, as you said, it reminded me very much of the uh, forefathers, the founding forefathers of American you know, or the Constitution. And I've always found that fascinating. And that's why, for me, in this book, that is my favorite poem, message, saying. And that's why I wanted to read it. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad you did.
1: (laughs) Paul, let's go to um, The Unforeseen Watchman. This fascinated me, but I want you to read it. So this is on page 26, everybody.
0: Yes, the title, The Unforeseen Watchman. Ever feel like you're being lived? Someone else is running your life? Does the thought give you a big chill? Like the cold steel of a knife, what you require to look at? Do you have to? what you require to do? Do you have to? surely, if you so intend, surely, if you so attend, what you experience totally depends on you what what of the feel of the cold steel what might that reveal an invisible knife at your back an unforeseen watchman in fact what you look at is anyone commanding you to what you do is anyone demanding you do of course not it's so cleverly done You become the very one, the invisible, by which the insidious is done. Such is the stealth surveillance conditioning has won. You're watching yourself. You're carrying the hidden prod and the monitoring device, your thoughts. You are watching yourself, which you don't see, as you are following the conditioning faithfully, You are told you do everything to yourself, conditioning so innocently passed off as education, but you fail to absorb the obvious indication. You are told everything and that you project. It's all regurgitation, yet the dots you still fail to connect. Even a canary would quickly fall from its perch. The noxious fumes of deception requiring no further search yes it is you the unforeseen and unseen watching watchman watching you all the while only following what and what not you are told to do
1: why did you choose to read that one you know when we talked about which one we're going to do you chose the eight why did you bring this one on
0: Well, I thought that uh, it actually goes along with the last one uh, that you read, because if you look at life, we are responsible for what we do. So I'm, I'm actually going back even to the first poem that I read, they're all kind of tied together. You're responsible for what you do, but you don't realize that your education is confining you to the thoughts and the wishes and the compliance that is expected of you. So you're not really free. What it is, is that you have become the person watching yourself to make sure that you do what is socially acceptable and not what is socially not acceptable. So it is not, we're not as free as we think we are, and it's not because of anybody but ourselves. We have accepted this unseen agenda, which is, occupying our life which we regurgitate so we don't really realize we're not free thinkers as we think we are but we can become by realizing that
1: now i understand why you wanted to include this one Ah, now i'm going to read the transformation of desire and that everybody is on page 123 so we're getting towards the end of the book here Is it a desire? Is that to what you aspire? To desire is to want what is not. Pure fantasy. To be desireless is to want what will be. Not getting what you want is to experience a mini grief. How can what you don't have be taken as if by a thief? Desire is an attempt to hide from unprocessed pain. Sorrow from unfulfilled desire yields no immediate gain. What if what you desire is not what takes you to your highest consciousness in form rather forsakes you? Imagine the joy of a desire in getting it. Can you imagine the joy? in forgetting it. What is greater than material desire? The answer is alignment with your spiritual highness, higher. Or, when wanting what you have and or what's happening, desire is transformed into fulfilment. Enjoy practising. It's a new perspective on you journey through time. Expressed here as a rhyme. Hmm.
0: You know, I love this. uh, I love this poem because uh, there's something very, very fundamental in it, which is. uh, You you can call the uh, origin of our suffering. And it seems to be a, a mental issue because when people have to have what they don't have to be happy, this seems to be the road to insanity. Where what I'm pointing out is that we can transform our lives by seeing that what we have, the fulfillment is already there, that what we desire is what's happening rather than wanting something that isn't happening. See, because one is reality. What is happening is reality. What isn't happening is not reality. And if we're always wanting what isn't happening, we are not living in, in the real world. So to desire things all the time and not to get them is a huge disappointment. And this in and of itself creates the major problems that people are having because they are led to believe that they should have this, they should have that to be happy when they have. What they
1: need to be happy, if only because for 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 me, Paul, in this uh, poem, I like there are two lines that I like. Imagine the joy of a desire in getting it. We can all do that. And can you imagine the joy in forgetting it? I think we can all associate with both of those lines, and that's why I wanted to read this um, poem it was those two lines imagine the joy of a desire in getting it and can you imagine the joy in forgetting it it was those lines that made me want to read this one paul let's go to um transcend equals transcend that's on page 131 would you care to read it for us
0: i'd be happy to the title transcend equals trance, in. to think things through may seem to be the most you can possibly do. But the greatest joy is when thinking takes a rest. A noisy mind compared to silence is no contest. When a decision does not yield complete satisfaction, too much information is the sufferer's main attraction. With too much to choose from, you find yourself increasingly numb. Becoming robot-like, moving mechanically, in a trance, there's no fulfillment or joyful dance. You are a spirit angel taught to identify as the body, thinking it's you who is drinking that hot potty. When any issue concerning the body does arise, identifying with it means you've been externalized the externalization of the spirit is deceit indicating the spiritual journey is far from complete only when this externalization you can transcend will the programming trance end
1: what's the significance of what you're trying to get across here
0: it's kind of interesting, uh, I always found fascinating uh, the word uh, uh, homophone, because homophone means two words that sound alike, but have different meaning. And of course, that's exactly what you see in the title here, transcend and trans mm. They're two separate words, but they have the same sound. And this is why I find these kind of things fascinating in writing. But the point I'm trying to make here is that we are in a trance. When we are socialized, we have particular thoughts. Everyone carries these same thoughts. And these thoughts lead us to do the same things. So we unknowingly are in a trance. And the only way to end that trance is to transcend. So that's how I try to point this out together as it is. And of course, it goes back to the to understanding we're only suffering when we're giving all these desires that we're to focus on and we can't accomplish those desires. Those are part of the trance. Well, if we can feel fulfillment in forgetting a desire, you can see you're transcending the trance. Ah. So what you've written, read in the last one to this one, that's how those couplings fit together.
1: There you go. I'm going to read the last one here. And this is, do we die so we fully live? And this is on page 135. No, this is not about the fear of dying nor the grief of loss by so many crying. Few seem to comprehend death's true meaning. Although toward getting older, everyone is leaning. Pulling the deepest wounds out of another's heart is what you do when the body you depart. Simple statement on how to live. Touch as many as you can deeply and forgive. Every deep connection is profoundly beyond affection. Like a unique collection of beads on a rosary, all those who become close, you help to set them free. This is a life preview, giving you a look at what you are supposed to do. Why this one again?
0: I, I wrote this basically based on memory. Uh, when I was four years old, I had an out-of-body experience. And uh, from that out-of-body experience, I realized that the people that I was around, I could hear and see them but they could not hear or see me. So I realized, and I didn't have those words at the time that I'm going to express, I realized that this is what I understood death to be. That it was only a change in frequency. That I would transcend to a higher frequency where I could see what was in the lower frequency below me. I could see and hear what was going on, but because those people were confined to that frequency, they could not see or hear me. And so that that's the first part of it that I understood. So the second part of it is that literally when you get to know and love someone, because we are all one consciousness, when you depart the physical, what happens is all the negative the deep wounds that are carried by those people who you dearly love, you take those wounds from them when you depart.
1: I've never thought of it that way. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's probably something most people don't quite understand.
1: Of course, we could say... But see, you
0: know... I would also say this is, de- this is what we call destination. You know, if you look, look at the word destiny it literally means the beginning and not the end because destination means to take a stand. So it happens in the beginning, not in the end. The end shows the result of what the beginning is. So if you live your life so that you care about other people, you are doing your most to help them in the end when you pass because you're taking their deepest deepest sorrows.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting thoughts there, everyone. Um, Paul, can you briefly describe, you know, the poems, the sayings, the messages that are in your other two books, you know, gibberishy, profound rhymes, and gibberishy rhymes, his bed burns. Just briefly give us an insight as to what's in these two books.
0: It's, uh, I guess I would say the best thing to say is that these three books are are kind of a series. And I say that only because they are uh, avenues to look at life differently uh, in several different topics. So that's what I really tried to do with this. And I've written all these poems out uh, years before as a result of my travels and during my travels and things like this. And so I wound up publishing them as three separate books. I could have published it as one large compendium, but I chose to publish it as three books because sometimes it's, again, that whole law of parsimony, a fewer ideas at each time, you're able to assimilate them better. So they are all dealing with this whole idea is that a new perspective looked at differently in many different ways can give you a new look about what your life can be if you want to perceive it anew and live it anew. And really, in many cases, that's what's starting to happen to people. They're becoming very uh, disenchanted with the way life is for them and has been. And they want a different life to lead. And so I wanted to provide them with the same kind of thoughts and the same kind of thought process I went through and dealing with my life and making it a better life for myself.
1: Do you think people should read the books um, in order? Or can they read them in any order
0: you can l- read them in any order you can read the book itself in any order. they all are separate messages which all reflect a maybe a universal look at okay. life.
1: What's next for Paul Narragon, you know both in terms of your own life and that of your writings? um are there any more books in the pipeline?
0: uh yes, there is. I've actually started to write another uh, another poetry book uh and this one will will take on a different format because i'm going to look more at the history of our whole existence through time and uh that's so that's one one project i'm working on the second one is that i have a, a uh a to, uh follow on to a sequel to the to the uh novel that i've written which will uh explain more about the the life of a starseed on planet earth.
1: Uh-huh. Um, who do you see Paul as your market for your books? Uh, but more importantly, who would you like to see reading your books? You know, young people, mature people, uh, people of all ages, genders.
0: Well, if you look at the course of, uh, of humanity as a whole, uh, It seems even from childhood, from my experiences, even as a child, things happen to me that I want to know more about life, especially if they don't conform to the thoughts, the visions that are being presented to you. So even as a child, one starts wondering, what is life really? So there is no confinement in that sense. People can learn from a young age all the way up through to being an elder, "What what is life? I mean, we always have these questions. So there is no there's no confinement in terms of age to read these kind of books. The second thought I would would venture out to say is that we can look at these things as ideas that all of us could enjoy seeing because discontentment doesn't just reside in one portion of our world. There are children that are unhappy. There are. Teenagers that are unhappy. There are adults who are unhappy. There are elderly people who are unhappy. And a lot of this has to do with the way they think about life and the way they look at life. And if that can change, people should be inspired to realize that their lives can change. Well, how beautiful is that?
1: Wonderful. Where can people get your books from, Paul? Uh,
0: the major book carriers, uh carry my book. Uh, they can also get it on Amazon and uh, they could also get it through uh, exlibris.com who has been the publisher for these books. Uh, those are sources.
1: Wow, there you go, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the, the readings, the insights into Paul Narragun and his poetic coupling rhymes. Uh, whether you view them as free verse or how you view them, all I say is Go and have a look, everybody. Paul, thanks for joining me on the show today. Paul Narrigan, everybody.
0: John, thank you. It's really a pleasure.
1: It's been a great pleasure as well. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe.